0: Hello and welcome to The World Is Ending podcast season three. On this season, I talk to my friends about their experiences growing up and uh, how they became who they are. So enjoy episode one of season three with my very dear friend Ashrabad. Over to the interview. So, hello and welcome to the World is Ending podcast. And today with me, I have my very dear friend, Ashurbad Nayak. Uh, a very brief introduction about Bad: that he is a lawyer. He did, he, we met in Odessa in a debate competition. And then uh, he was a student in NLU, Katak back then. And now he is uh, going to be an LLM student in Cambridge University a voracious reader, bibliophile, a very good artist, and a man of many talents. I am super glad to have him on my podcast. Hi, Ashurabad.
1: Hello, Ankit. Thank you so much. That was quite an introduction, I must say. Loved it. And yeah, just one more thing. The name is perfect, man. The world is ending. Uh, Right now, it's very, very apt.
0: The world is a crematorium of good ideas.
1: I, 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 I second that. I
0: second that. And also, the birthplace of some really
1: good ones too. Mm-hmm.
0: True, true. Yeah, it's always because ideas exist in uh, pairs; they never exist independently.
1: Absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, could you give us a brief introduction about you—a walk through your life, or who you are, what you represent, and all that. Uh, I'll just add on, I
1: think you gave a picture perfect description. Uh, mm-hmm. To just add on to it, um, I am from Bmeesure, spent mm-hmm. most of my life over here. Uh, I grew up reading a lot of books. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was always so I started off with I'd say Enid Brighton and progressed mm-hmm. to whatever I can get my hands on to mm-hmm. read nowadays, uh, that's just one aspect that I really liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I fell into law, uh, I was a science student, 11, mm-hmm. 12, uh, mm-hmm. hated science, like I absolutely hated science, as I'm sure quite a few people listening to this podcast may have also experienced, you know, who just mm-hmm. went along with science because at that point of time, they felt or maybe mm-hmm. the parents felt that you know it mm-hmm. was the best available option. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was quite fortuitous of me mm-hmm. that I managed to, you know, find my love for law. It all tied up together. I used to, uh, I still do in fact debate, as you mentioned, uh, like speaking mm-hmm. and couple that up with my love for reading and bingo, law school was the perfect place for me. So I fell into law, uh, grew to love it. Mm-hmm. And now, as you mentioned, I'll be going to Cambridge, uh, in September, yeah. for my masters. Uh-huh. So, yeah, and I think I think I did mention that to you, I think, two or three years ago, that uh-huh. very fact that I will be going there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you did. You did. You did. Nice. Nice. Uh, I think. I think. You kind of knew it from the start that you're going to do big things. I kind of knew it from the start that you're going to do big things. So everything that's kind of happening was supposed to happen and maybe uh, will continue happening in a much bigger magnitude than today.
1: Correct. So... I think, again, so I'll just start off with the story because, you know, I like reading stories. Mm. I like telling stories.
2: Right. So right. taking
1: it straight up from the point that you mentioned that, you know, mm. knowing certain things. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, so for that, we'll have to, you know, go back in time. We have to go back, say, six years. Uh, it's mm. 2015. fifteen. I'm just out of my 12 standards, uh, board mm. exams, I absolutely did a horrible job of answering the questions. Uh So that time I gave CLAC, managed to clear it, uh, managed to clear my board exams as well, quite fortunately. Mm -hmm. So I am at law school, I enter National University, Odessa. And at that point of time, I did not like it at all. Like I absolutely Mm -hmm. hated, you know, how things were going in just say my life, or you know, where I was, it was unfamiliar, uncharted territory, basically. Mm -hmm. And that feeling of, you know, not belonging to say a particular place, uh, not connecting with you know the entire environment uh, that persisted for a couple of years uh, I think quite a few people can also relate to that like when you have had a very different kind of life for say you know the first 16 17 years of your existence mm-hmm. and you're taken out and you're thrown into a new place uh, not only is it kind of say a culture shock to meet mm-hmm. so many people from you know all different walks of life uh, with all with a very diverse personalities, mm-hmm. And, you know, you're staying in a hostel. Like, I'd never stayed in a hospital before. So, you know, I was put in a hostel. It, it is a fantastic hostel, no doubt mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. But you have to, you know, learn to navigate your way. You have to learn to coexist. And if you are that good, you may also help a few other people along the way. So, mm-hmm. for the first couple of years of my time at law school, uh, to those who don't know, law the integrated law program is essentially a five-year program. Uh, mm. So the first couple of years they weren't that great, and that is just putting it mildly, uh, because I had no direction. I, I realized that now with the benefit of hindsight that I did not have any direction. I did not know what I was doing. I did mm. not know who I was, and that is the more important aspect. Of my life I did not know mm-hmm. who I was like what am I doing here mm-hmm. you kind of feel alienated from yourself like even if you're in your own room you know we had single rooms over there you're trapped with your thoughts
3: mm-hmm. and
1: those are not very nice thoughts when you think that you know okay I don't have a future I don't know what I'm going to do mm-hmm. and you know everyone around me like you know your friends from childhood or even your friends from college oh they have got everything sorted out
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, they are progressing very well I'm the one left behind uh I realize now that this is a line of thought that goes across a lot of people's mind, you know, they may not be at say a law school, they may be at any walk of life, they may be an engineer, uh, they may be someone who's working at some place. So mm-hmm. these thoughts persist. So mm-hmm. at that point of time, I knew two things. Uh, mm-hmm. One, that I'm in a bad spot right now. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, I won't be here in this spot for long Uh, Mm -hmm. and that was with a firm conviction that I want to get out of whatever is happening like I want to get out of my own mind Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. what I did back then and I this is something I uh, remember distinctly is I took a piece of paper Mm -hmm. I wrote down a few things you know Mm -hmm. it it was not even a large piece of paper it was just a strip of paper Mm -hmm. Uh, I wrote down a few things I said okay this is what I want like by the end of my law school like you know by the end of my five years over here these are the things I want. So I wrote two things. Uh, so on either side of the page, mm-hmm. uh, strip. Sorry, I wrote personal. I headed one as personal, and the other is professional.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So in professional, I wrote I want my again because uh, in law school you give a lot of priority to your academics, and you know, and you should like anyone who's studying in any venture. Uh, you should prioritize the purpose for which you're present over there. So I wrote, okay, I want a GP of this much. I want mm-hmm. these many publications. I want this, this, this and that. I want a placement at, you know, these XYZ firms, like either of these XYZ firms. Mm-hmm. And at the very top of that list, like at serial number one, I wrote LLM. I wrote the name of three colleges, mm-hmm. Oxford, Cambridge. And the mm-hmm. third was, I think, King's College. All right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when I look back at it, uh, five years later, Mm-hmm. Each and every one of those things, they mm-hmm. came true. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just because, say, I wished for it, uh, but I worked for it. Mm-hmm. So I just split away right now in the conversation to a point in time in my fourth year.
2: Right. So right. what
1: happened was, uh, there's this competition called NUJS HSF Moot Court Competition. Um, yeah,
3: yeah.
1: Moot courts are considered to be A trial court format, of course, Indian courts are very different from how Mm -hmm. a moot court works. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's a very good exposure to teamwork, to, you know, arguing, to finessing your thoughts, to refining your arguments, your oratory skills. So Mm -hmm. in my fourth year, I took part in this competition called the NEJS HSF Moot Court Competition. Mm -hmm. And no one, basically no one gave us a chance of winning, like in the entire college. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, you know, when you have that entire expectation, you know, buried down on you that, okay, they don't expect great things from you, it somehow Mm -hmm. seeps into your own psyche that, okay, maybe, you know, I can't do this. So I remember, I was, uh, we were en route to NUJS, uh, which is in Kolkata, it's Mm -hmm. National University of Juridical Sciences. Uh uh And on the way there. Uh, the only thing I could think of was let me just, you know, not get kicked out in the prelims. Like, I just want to clear the prelims. That's all. That's all. And that is the only thing I wanted.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, then I go there uh, and we exceed our own expectations, like my entire team. Like, you know, I remember I hadn't slept for a month or more while preparing for that. Mm-hmm. So, there's this point of time I distinctly remember this was prior to the quarterfinals. We cleared the prelims. We were in the mm-hmm. quarterfinals. And I was exhausted. I was physically, mentally, I was drained. Because a lot of things were weighing down on my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, primarily, I was fatigued. Uh, my body mm-hmm. couldn't take it anymore. And second thing which kept going on in my head was that if I don't you know, perform well, if I, again, this is external pressure. But as I mentioned, it seeps down.
2: Right. right.
1: Thought which went on in my head was, okay, if I don't perform well, everything that you know, everyone else said, it mm-hmm. would be true. You know, this guy's not good enough. This guy, you know, can't compete at that level, whatever.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And again, it just harkens back to what I had thought in my second year. I'm not going to let like, this happen. I'm right, in a bad like, spot. I'm not going to let this happen. Hmm. So I remember I was sitting down my face. So there was a bench over there. I'm sitting down. Uh-huh. I'm dead
0: tired.
1: Uh-huh. And I, I literally told this to myself. I'm prepared to die. Like right now, if dying is what it takes... To mm-hmm. cross this round, to cross this bridge. I will do it.
2: Uh-huh. And I
1: go in there and uh, the other team comes up and they're fabulous. So they were the appellants and we were the respondents.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so they come up, they present their case and they were fabulous. And that point of time, I stand back and realize, okay, I have to bring my A game. I have to present the best I ever have else I'm not clearing it. Uh-huh. And I stood up and I said these words, the counts. Uh, there's a bench of judges, and, and you me. have to address them. You have to mm-hmm. give to them. So, yeah. stand up and I tell them uh, the council seeks permission to approach the podium uh, where you're supposed to go and speak. With mm-hmm. that one sentence, something shifted in my mind, and I knew that I'm going to go and kill it. So, mm-hmm. I go there. I had the round of my life. Uh, it, it was fabulous. Like, to everyone who was there in that room, like my team, the other team, the three judges. And in the people administering the courtroom, the ones who keep their time, you know, who take care of the physical copies, the hard copy submission of memorials and all. Right. They knew it's something special going on. Like we could all feed it. It was there. Because those uh-huh. guys were good. And we came in, you know, equally if not better.
3: Uh-huh.
2: And
1: we won that round. And then, you know, we had our semis. Uh, and then we had went into our finals. Mm-hmm. And what happened in the finals was uh, we finished a final round. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sit back, the the jury, ta- so again, the final round is a panel of the very best in the business. You get mm-hmm. partners from Herbert Smith Freehills who come mm-hmm. in to preside over there. Mm-hmm. And Herbert Smith Freehills is one of the largest law firms in the world. They mm-hmm. have the revenues in excess of a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. The partners are the ones who have seen it all, all and, you know, done it all. So you can't fool these guys. You can't bluff these guys. You have to be thorough in what you speak as they'll catch you. And they mm. catch you, you're done.
2: Mm.
1: So, I remember sitting back and thinking, okay, maybe I kind of blew it. Like, you know, will mm. I never win the big one? So, they had arranged all these trophies in front of us. The winners, the right. runners-up, right. and, you know, the best speaker, best listener and right. right. And I just kept on looking at that, you know, just that winner's trophy and thinking, man, will I never win it all? Will I never win it all? Mm. But at that point of time, I was content. Like, I felt to myself, okay, even if, I lose, it's mm-hmm. fine. Uh, no one else from my college had won prior to that. We had been runners up once. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I sit back and think, it's fine. Even if I lose, it's fine. Mm-hmm. And when they went on to announce the winner, mm-hmm. they said, so we were the respondents again in the final round. Mm-hmm. And they said, the winner are the respondents. Mm-hmm. So for a second, you know, I, I couldn't process it. i like, okay, right, what is going right. on? Did we actually win? Mm-hmm. And they re-announced it. So I got up, you know, kind of a day. I went in, uh, shook the hands, got the trophy, the ceremony Uh got Uh over. Uh Then I come back to college. And that slip of paper that I was referring to, Uh I take that slip of paper out. Uh Uh, As I mentioned, at the Uh very first serial number, Uh I wrote three colleges, Oxford, Uh Cambridge and Kings. Uh I took a pen and I cut out Kings. That was the moment I knew that, you know, I will get into Oxford or Cambridge.
0: Right. Right. Fast forward a couple of years later, I did. Yeah. Yeah, you did. you did, Of course. Uh, Something that really stands out for me is that, you know, everyone has a story for their victory. Uh, You know, it's, it's very special for all of them, but the fact that you go through all of that, you know, you have, you carry the momentum of a victory and do not uh, let it get to you personally is, is something that is extremely important. And and I think I think you've you are some of you know you're one of those people who are are mature enough to understand you know to separate the water from the waters and and you you were able to do it that's 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 so good because you see I, I've been in a similar position I don't know if you know it we had this competition called the Smart India Hackathon which is slightly more insignificant compared to any of the competitions you have ever attended, but that competition, in our college had never qualified the very first round, and that kind of reminded me when you're talking about it, right? So I never, our college never qualified in the first round. We didn't have a team. Uh, none of my teammates were coders. We went to the hackathon to showcase a product that was a coded product. I, I prepared for a month in advance, you know got fundings from the college because I couldn't fund myself we had to get our own t-shirts banners tickets couple of things you know like it It was it was an expensive competition okay so we went there and and for uh I think I think we had our midterms going on so I kind of skipped my midterms I thought maybe maybe the competition is more worth it I went there uh when I was starting the competition at 6 a.m in the morning I hadn't slept for the past two days, like I'm talking, not even a wink of sleep for the past two days. And we have to like stay awake for the next three days because hackathons are like that. So we started off and we realized that there's no Red Bull hair. <laughs> 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 and that's when I was like, oh, cool. shit. So what do we do? So my very first assumption was that I'll probably secure some uh, caffeine pills or something and I'll have that. Which was my very first assumption. Then I realized that I couldn't even get that. That was in Ayatik Harakpur, which is in a district called Midnapur, where you know nothing is very available. It would have been available if I'd have like uh, sifted through my friend circle and then you know figured something out. But 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 it wasn't easy to get it at that point of time. True. <sighs> so I kind of thought that cool, I'll 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 Take sugar. I think sugar is the one that is going to keep me awake. And I, I kept coding. You know, the the, mo- the most uh, difficult thing about programming for twelve more than twelve hours is that it it gets to you, man. Like you really feel fatigued after a while, and you have to also make presentations every two hours. And again, as I told you, no team member, lonely guy there. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that kind of reminded me of that. And then I think I think I've, we finished third uh, out of around twenty five thousand teams. Which is incredible. Yeah, but, puts but, you on a... but, but then, you know, the point was not that, you know, like, I didn't even feel the victory. I was so dazed. My teacher came and hugged me. I didn't feel that. My very first response was, man, I need some sleep now. It's how it... <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I absolutely agree with you because I went through that, you know, same circle of emotions and fatigue yeah. or whatever you call it, you know. Uh-huh. That sense of things just not sinking in at that moment. Or not even later,
0: right? And and, and so, my college and my college was an asshole college, so they they they. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we all have our gripes about our respective colleges,
0: man. Yeah, we I all... have I have some very specific gripes, right? So these people they called me up nine in the morning next day to get an interview with some channel, a news channel, and I said I don't want the college's name to be associated with this, <laughs> <laughs> so I never picked up the call. So they just put on some random names and they just publish the interview anyway. I mean, my perspective. I think, <laughs> I, uh, look, look, Mare, it's perfectly
1: fine. Uh, you, as I mentioned that, you know, I also, you did not like my college that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, things later change, but it's perfectly fine. Uh, yeah. To do I, hope, I hope you like you don't
0: owe. I hope you like Cambridge I, better though.
1: <laughs> I, I think I will. I think I will, man. So, I'll just pick up one thing that you mentioned. Uh, mm-hmm. I think right uh, like right at the beginning of your story, mm-hmm. you mentioned that, you know, uh, taking lessons. It, 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 I'm not exactly, you know, capturing what you said, in, but I think it's the So, essence, so, so my, my, point mentioned...
0: being, my point being that the momentum of victory uh, can either get to you as a, you know, you become vain about it or you continue the momentum and, and you chose the latter, which is, which is the smarter thing to do.
1: So I'll take, again, this is something I realized the hard way, okay? Mm-hmm. So again, uh, i just go back to the end of my first year. I was naive and I was stupid, uh, as most people, will know, when they're 17 or 18, they are. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, so I had I had done one MU-in, I had won one MU-in, I had gotten some paper published, I had won some, you know, debate uh, in my college level. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I kind of I time I felt that okay I had done enough like I have done enough I'm the king of the world like I don't need to prove anything to anyone else I'm like very happy with where I am Mm. so I grew content I grew very comfortable you know with where I am so more than (laughs) what failure could affect me success affected me and then for a again it just exacerbated everything wrong that was going on uh, at that point of time Mm.
0: right right
1: not grow arrogant as a result of it, uh, Mm -hmm. but it kind of added to my insecurities like, okay, will I ever be able to live up Mm -hmm. to this? Uh, Will I ever be able to replicate something? Stupid Mm -hmm. thoughts you realize now, but Mm -hmm. when you're at that point of time, uh, they are the only thoughts that you have. Mm -hmm. So what happened was that is what went on towards my second year, towards the mid of my second year. Mm -hmm. And I was despondent basically. I did not know because Mm -hmm. I grew... So comfortable for so long, I mm-hmm. did not know how to get back on track. I did not realize, like you know, how my priorities had shifted. I grew content mm-hmm. with too little. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what happened was, uh, I took part in this competition called uh, the Oxford Price Media Moot Court Competition, mm-hmm. and fact that I had never done even a single moot court, like you know, not even a college one, not anything.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And
1: that competition.
0: Hello. Asher, uh, bad. I'm not able to hear you. Audio uh, yeah, I'm not able to hear you. Let's go.
1: Cool. So what happened was, I, as far as I remember, I had mm-hmm. always wanted to go to. Oxford. I mm-hmm. wanted to experience that culture, that that environment of you know all those things that you read about in books, all those things that you dream about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went there. Mm-hmm. We cleared the preliminary rounds, mm-hmm. and in the octa finals, we got a, uh, uh, in polite terms, as handed to us by the other team, okay. uh, who were from another law school from India. So, quite surprisingly, we went on to meet each other, as the opposing teams in the uh, octa rounds of an international competition. So we lost. Uh, What happened was, then I had to go back to London. Uh, I was staying with a friend of mine, who Mm -hmm. happened to be from that very same law school. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was the senior, like the people who had beat beat us in the octas. he -hmm. was their senior. Mm -hmm. So one evening, like when we were in London, we had this party you know where everyone was invited like you know so I was there like the people I was staying with they were there mm-hmm. and then of course the other team you know the team that just beat us uh, mm-hmm. they arrived
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they were all very nice people very polite it's a competition man you win and you win some you lose some but mm-hmm. you learn from everything
2: mm-hmm.
1: but just that feeling you know it is not a nice feeling uh, like when you're prepared for a competition for a year or so You've mm-hmm. needed a huge part of your life. You've you know, given up everything, sleep, friends, other activities for just that one competition. Uh, it means a lot to you. So right. I remember we, was, we were at a restaurant somewhere. It was a Thai restaurant. Okay. Uh, and then these guys just walk in and someone just sat at the table. I think there were around 11 people at the table and said, oh, look, here come the champs. Mm-hmm. So at that point of time, you know, again, uh, A huge disclaimer, they are all very nice people. They did not intend it in any way. Mm -hmm. At that point of time, I felt what I felt. It was not a nice feeling. Just that one sentence, you know, okay, here come the champs. Mm -hmm. I told myself, I never want to feel that way again. Never. Mm -hmm. Because I felt that maybe, okay, I did not give my best. Mm-hmm. I did not give as much as I could have to the competition or say things right. went wrong with the team or whatever. Right. It doesn't matter. The mm-hmm. end result was we did not get through when we could have got through. I did mm-hmm. not like that feeling. So ever since then, you know, when I mentioned that, you know, at that HSF competition, when I'm sitting down mm-hmm. and I'm feeling exhausted and I tell myself I'd rather die than give up. So mm-hmm. it all circles back to that point of time. Mm-hmm. That's okay. I don't want to feel this way again so mm-hmm. from then on it became it is acceptable for me to you know fail because you will fail eventually at something or the other right but what is not acceptable to me is to have that feeling that i did not try my best i did not give my best mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. not a nice feeling and that is what has fueled me from then on in whatever i do i don't ever want to feel that i have let myself down
2: Makes so i think sense.
1: that shift in mentality
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: I think that is what makes all the difference.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah, man, that's that's actually very, very profound. I think I have this thing on my house uh, right now as you are speaking. I have put that as a poster. Uh, that I will not react to my fears and insecurities the way I react to love and compassion. Uh,
1: Perfect. That's beautiful.
0: Yeah, I think I think that I really think that that quote is kind of something that I need to hear every day because there are so many moments in my life that like you know you get your scolding from your boss who says that you know you're not a competent employee not that my boss scolds me or something <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, you know you get, you get a scolding from your parents that you're not a good you're not the best that you could do uh, you get a scolding from your people uh, anyone you know friends anyone at all that, that you could have done better, you know, all those things. And, and, and you think that, wow, you know, it, it's not always a scolding. It's sometimes it's, 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 uh, the way you said like, hi, welcome the, the champs, you know, and it's kind of, a, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a commentary about what, how you performed as well. When, when someone else is called a champion, when you're the loser, right. So calling someone else the champion indirectly calls you out for losing the competition. So I think I think and it's uh
1: I it wasn't intended that I get it, I get
0: it, I get it, I get it. I'm just saying that that whenever someone says that, so these people are the first position winners in a competition, whenever it's announced on the podium, you know, the other people are said that you guys are not the winners. These people are the winners, you know. So and yeah. and, and that's kind of an insecurity in most people that you're not the winner, that will kind of awaken those insecurities in them and they will kind of respond to it violently in some way or the other and, uh, <laughs> some people I'd not mention, you some people <laughs> not you
1: no, look again these things can I would <laughs> <laughs> you the last person I take to be violent <laughs> you're the last person I'd take to be violent uh, right but I, I understand where you're coming from like mm-hmm. uh, people react to different you know stimulus, in different ways, like the very same, you know, sentence could have evoked a different response in someone, someone else, you know, might have been, you know, completely cool with it, would have, you mm-hmm. know, not even given it a second thought. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it depends entirely on how you are as a person, right, so, right. which is the major thing I found throughout my time in law school, I came to realize myself a bit better, I still mm-hmm. don't know myself completely. Mm-hmm. But I have a much fairer and clearer idea of who i am as a person what i want with my life how i want my life to look at mm-hmm. you know when i'm 30 years down the line or you know when i'm right. 50 so that thing uh, mm-hmm. it circles back entirely to who you are on the inside mm-hmm. so one thing i often used to think again because i used because i read a lot mm-hmm. uh, i I'll just correlate it uh, that I used to initially think that, okay, how great would life be if life Mm -hmm. was easy? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth, uh, you have like a hundred different people looking after you. Uh, You don't have to, you know, work essentially for anything. You get everything handed to you. Your Mm -hmm. life becomes very easy. Mm -hmm. But then the more you read about, you know, all these people in history or, you Mm -hmm. know, even people in fiction, Mm -hmm. We relate to people, say, you know, let's take, say, a fictional character, say, for example, Naruto, or, you know, say, Superman, or, say, a real-life person like, say, Alexander, or, say, you know, uh, Netaji, Sebastian, Mahatma Gandhi, Mm -hmm. whoever. We relate to them, not because they had an easy mm-hmm. life. None mm-hmm. of them had. Like even Superman with all his super strength, you mm-hmm. need his story. He's, he gets his butt handed to him mm-hmm. by every other guy. Like Lex Luthor hands his butt to him, man. Mm-hmm. But what attracts us to these characters, to these stories, is the fact that they face those adversities head on. Mm-hmm. They never shied away from, you know, facing their own insecurities, their own fears. Mm-hmm. And then they overcame it. And mm-hmm. that is the stories that get remembered. When you think about no. Alexander, yeah, he conquered the whole world. But he had to leave his home behind. He was like 18 when he started out on that journey. He crossed that river Porus in the middle of the night with his army. He beat mm-hmm. everyone and anyone while facing, you know, some sort of rebellion from within his own army.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: So he overcame those things and which is why he's remembered. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that is the way to live for every person. It may be different. But one thing which is common is we shouldn't be averse to adversity. We should face it head on to the best of our abilities, We should face it. It took me quite a lot of time to Mm -hmm. realize that that I uh, shouldn't run away from things that scare me. Mm -hmm. And this is something which one of my friends actually... Again, put it into perspective with just one sentence. Yeah. Uh, again, it was the same Oxford Price Media Move for competition. So what had happened was uh, when we have our practice rounds, I mm-hmm. just flinch from questions. Like I did not like answering questions. I felt that, you know, when the judge is grilling me, you know, it just made me scared. So I tried to dodge a question. Mm-hmm. And this was something which was very, very subconscious. Mm-hmm. And then this guy comes up to me, Anand, who is my teammate. He comes up to me and he tells me, don't run from that question. face it, handle it and then answer it. And that just shifted everything in my head and not just from the context of that competition itself, right. but how you apply it to life as a general. From then mm-hmm. on, I became much more comfortable, you know I invited questions. I just set up my speech in certain ways that you know at particular juncture the judge would be forced to ask a question, mm-hmm. which I could you know then turn to my advantage. I could use it better to get to another point or to spin a story better. Mm -hmm. so that you take that philosophy and you apply it to life you will face adversity there will be times you know you want things and they won't work out Um, the biggest example being the pandemic we are in right now Uh a lot of people have suffered tremendous adversity tremendous adversity Mm -hmm. but when you think about it if you break down under this adversity if the doctors were on the front line you know treating our patients they are under the maximum strain you know scant resources their own well being is at, at, at stake and mm-hmm. you know they have to see people dying every day mm-hmm. if they break down under that adversity then the society crumbles down mm-hmm. so this is the same thing i'm not saying in the same words what is going on in their mind but the same spirit which is there in their bodies that we have to face it we have to rise above it right right and that is what life is
0: yeah we were not built for comfort we were built to face adversities we were not built to live in comfort but to fetch comfort to live in if that makes sense
1: that that's a very nice way of putting it forward that's a very
0: nice way honestly but uh thank you but but you know i i kind of heard this interview of ananya Pandey where she was talking about how her life was full of struggles and all that and while a lot of people criticized her that you know your struggles man you don't have to struggle and all that but then I kind of empathize with her, you know, I don't know, for some reason, I thought that even if someone uh, I mean, how much ever insignificant their struggle might seem to you to them, it is struggle of some magnitude. And if that is what they want to call it, if that is what they have overcome, I mean, whatever you get without overcoming anything is not success, even by your understanding. So even if even if everything is handed to you on a plate, and you have to still do a to kind of feel like you overcame it, and then got it handed to you on a plate, I think, if you have to cry to your mom to give you food, you feel like the food is better, you know, that the babies who you've seen the babies stop crying when their mom feeds them, right? They they, they have to cry to get their food. it's kind of weird, but then, but then they are the most satisfied once they eat and then they sleep. Like nothing has ever happened. Uh, That's how, that's how I think about life. You know, it's not that no one would give food to the babies. It's just that they would have to at least cry to tell, to voice their opinion that they are hungry right there. And, and that's what makes the food fulfilling for them. If, if someone has a duct tape inside your mouth and they have to always, they always get feeded whenever, you know, it's, whenever it it, it opens, it won't feel like food. It would feel like machinery.
1: I agree with you on uh, the premise that you just laid out. Mm -hmm. Uh, One point I do agree with you that, you know, everyone's struggle is different. What Mm -hmm. to say person A may feel as insignificant to person B would feel a mountain to overcome, a mountain to climb. And right. I completely agree with you when you give, give, give that example of Ananya Pandey that, okay, whatever sh- struggles she might have had, mm-hmm. which, you know, people who are even below her, like a lot below her in the food chain, you know, they haven't faced, uh, they haven't gotten to that level yet where they consider those things as struggles. For them, right. you know, that's right. overcoming them, that's way more than that. Or maybe it may be, to someone else, it may be way less than that. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree with that mm-hmm. because essentially your life is your own. And you cannot compare another person's journey to your own journey. So mm. I agree with that point. Uh, what mm. I'd like to offer uh, on a you know alternative view
3: mm.
1: is that uh, one thing that we can often take from the lives of others is mm. to put into context what our struggles are and what their struggles are. Uh, to just give an example, I'll give, I'll mention a you know, couple of instances. Uh, there are three books that I've read which have stuck with me you know, for the longest period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are respectively A River in Darkness. This is mm-hmm. about a person uh, who escaped from North Korea. Uh, the second one is When Breath Becomes Air. Uh, it's by Dr. Paul Kalanity. Mm-hmm. And the third one is Randy Posh's autobiography. Uh, so basically, and the latter book, uh, which is called The Last Lecture is one of mm-hmm. the most impactful books I've ever read uh, so essentially what happens uh, in the latter two books when breath becomes air and the last lecture is uh, both of these people are diagnosed with you know incurable cancer and these are true right. life stories all these right. books are true life stories right and so it's a journey of you know coming to terms with it it's a journey of coming to terms with the fact that okay I have to confront my own mortality like you know I won't get to see my kids grow old. Uh, Mm -hmm. I won't, you know, wake up next to my wife the next morning. Mm I will grow weak. So what do you do in that time which is left for you, which is not very long, which was Mm -hmm. not very long in, you know, both of these instances. um, Where, you know, you built up this life, you know, to the best you can. You have reached a certain position in society, you know, where you're helping others, you're having a good life. And it's Uh all taken away in an instant Without any fault of your own, so what do you do? How do you handle it? Where is the? Where do you get that grace from to face mm-hmm. that adversity? So when right. you put those struggles into perspective, whatever that you are going through right now,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you will automatically feel that okay, I can overcome it too. Uh, right. Which is why right. I, uh, I'll give the second example, uh, which is why so mm-hmm. I often think back. You know, who are the people I look up? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I look up to a lot of people, but one person in specific, and of course, most of them are people like, you know, say a famous sports person, an author, a writer, a musician, you know, who inspire you and all. Uh, that of like, course like... is common for everyone, uh-huh. but one very ordinary person that I have always looked up to, uh, mm-hmm. uh, her name was Tamara O'Brien, uh, again, not a celebrity, not anything. Uh, so what happened was, this happened a couple of years ago, I think, or maybe early last year. I was just crawling through YouTube and I came across, you know, Tamara's, there was this interview by GQ and okay. it says that, you know, this, this is this 21 year old person who's uh, struggling with stage four terminal cancer. Mm-hmm. And so that person was born in 1997, which is basically the year in which I was born. And she was this fabulous gymnast, qualified for the world, a so very nice person, a very nice family and all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for some reason, it just stuck. Like I was hooked to that video. I kept on watching it, watching it, watching it. Then I found out that, you know, she had her own blog series. Uh, so I went through that. And I, by that time, I, you know, I got to know about her. I found out that, you know, she had already passed away.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and for some reason, it just stuck that, okay, someone who is basically my age mm-hmm. uh, has had say, you know, I I won't say similar experiences, uh, but say experiences which may be common to people of our age while growing up. Someone who has, you know, had those same aspirations which say, I have at this juncture, you know, I want to see the world, I want to travel here, I want to eat over here, I want to make a life like this, you know, all these things. taken away from that person in an instant. And that person knows, you know, well in advance that, okay, I have mm-hmm. to let go of those dreams, you know, mm-hmm. my dreams are curtailed for the moment. So how do they handle that? How mm-hmm. do they do it? And then I saw, they see that, you know, everything has like four stages. Anger, acceptance, mm-hmm. denial. I'm uh, sorry, the last stage is acceptance, like denial, anger. I forgot the third stage.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But the... Beauty with it, I, I, I'm not sure beauty is the appropriate word, but I'll just mention it because I can't think of anything else to describe mm-hmm. it. The courage, the courage and the beauty with which Tamara O'Brien handled that interview mm-hmm. uh, where she basically says that, you know, she has come to terms with what life has offered to her and then mm-hmm. she speaks about, okay, how she never felt that, you know, she was good enough, she wasn't beautiful enough or whatever. Mm -hmm. just hearing that and realizing that okay our lives already are very beautiful no matter how much adversity we are going through right because when you're confronted with the fact that okay you know life may end at any moment when you realize this fact Mm -hmm. that is when you learn to be grateful for whatever you have had till now Mm -hmm. and that just really you know put things into perspective for me that and so whenever you know of course there are days when you don't feel happy there are days when you feel like you know things are wanted they aren't working out i just go back and watch that video i think about that person someone i've never met someone who was an absolutely ordinary person someone who was not a celebrity at all whatever but a very real human being
2: right, right. and
1: that just filters everything else out. And that just puts that question of adversity, you know, whatever adversity I may have right now, mm-hmm. it just puts the, it, okay, in the long run, uh, it may not be that difficult to overcome. So, yeah, that, I think that would be the second point I'd raise to what you mentioned.
0: Yeah, sure, sure. I was just looking her up. Looks like she's a Canadian gymnast who... Absolutely. As a terminal cancer. Very interesting position to be in with a cancer and being a gymnast. where you have to hoop through two um, problems at the same time. <laughs> Jump and, through, you know, hurdles of different kinds. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: and you know, one thing, again, you know, because we are so young, you know, we are in our early 20s. So, mm-hmm. uh, These things, they don't come into our mind right now. Uh, Because again, we are oriented to be very, very individualistic. Mm -hmm. Most of us, I'm not saying that in our society, it is so. But I see in our generation, uh, we are very individualistic, which is not a bad thing at all. It is a very good thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. But the key word over here is harmony. I believe that you always have to live in harmony with others. Always, you know, prioritize your own well-being over others, uh, but don't take it so far that you become selfish and arrogant, uh, which, unfortunately, I witnessed that, you know, we are in some way or the other, I wouldn't say encouraged, uh, but we are nudged to be. Uh, It is very, very subconscious, very, very subconscious, but we do not give the priority to the feelings of others, be it our friends, our family, our parents, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it just makes you realize how do you want to be remembered as uh, not you know, at the end of your life, but say even right now, uh, there are certain people uh, I'm sure you would have in your life. And you just think about them. Uh, you smile, you know, okay. Okay. Maybe I had a funny conversation with that person, or maybe that person helped me or, uh, you know, you, you think about them and you think that, okay, I look forward to having a conversation with this person. I look forward to meeting this person. Right, Uh, right. Physically when possible or say virtually or whatever. So do we have that effect on others? And at the end of the day, that is the biggest measure of a man or a woman. What you do for others lives on in time. And I realized that uh, because I was an absolute asshole, I'd say uh, in my first year, and I, I was not an asshole intentionally. I was very, very insecure with who I was. I did not figure things out. I did not know myself. So I did not intentionally hurt anyone. I did not go out to put people in trouble. Obviously, I did not do that. But when someone wanted to help for me, I would, you know, refute them. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd act in a manner which was not becoming of me. Uh, so I, I did not realize that back then. But when I started receiving help from others, you know, selfless, unconditional help from my friends, from my family, Uh, I remember when I had to get my visa done, there was this random stranger who was standing outside the... Sorry, when I had to get my passport done, there was this random stranger outside the passport office who helped me. Uh, He'd made a couple of phone calls and he made things work out or whatever, however that was. That was God's grace or whatever. So Mm. that was the point I realized if knowingly or unknowingly you received so much help from others it Mm -hmm. is basically your responsibility or your duty to Mm -hmm. pass it on and that became the driving focus of the last two two and a half years of my law school Mm -hmm. I wanted to pass on whatever I had received be it say knowledge Mm -hmm. or help whatever it may be to others to my juniors specifically so when I changed that question in my mind when it became it changed from I to we when it changed from what I want to okay what can I do for my college you know what can I do for my people what can I do for my friends how can I help my juniors mm-hmm. that is when things change that is when I started to fall in love with the place I gave that place a chance and then I found out that okay maybe that place isn't that bad enough uh, I see maybe the people aren't that bad enough Right. And right. I've tried my best uh, to whatever extent possible and mm-hmm. I hope that you know if I've been able to help other people in my law school uh, or in whatever walk of life, mm-hmm. uh, I hope they carry that and you know pass it forward to whoever else needs them, needs that, whatever help the other person might need down the line.
0: Right, right. Yeah, man, that's quite profound. Uh, I think I think you kind of summed up most things that could have been said on the subject. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, moving on, I think I think you read a lot of books, and you kind of quote from a lot of books. So I mean, you're you're someone (laughs) I know as a voracious reader, I most of the conversation we've ever had is uh, have centered around, you know, our personal experiences with various people we end up meeting or otherwise books. So uh, how do you how do you pick up the next book that you have to read? First question. Uh...
1: So, my tastes changed. So, when I started off reading, I was pretty young. I think the first book I read was... And, and again, one more thing is I remember a lot of things. So, mm-hmm. it may be kind of, you know, creepy or whatever, but I do remember. No, I I, I kind of remember
0: absolutely random things as well. So, that's fine.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, virtual high-five to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, the very first book I remember I read uh, was called The Boy Next Door. It was by ah, Lighting. Right, right. So, and I even remember like what was written on that page. Like there's this girl called Lucy. Her brother is called Robin. then the protagonist uh-huh. is called Kit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the first few paragraphs were about how the ages are in a step ladder. Like someone is eight-year-old, someone is nine-year-old. And Robin is the 10-year-old guy. So because I think I was seven at that point of time when I read that. So I was like, okay, I'm another part of, you know, this ladder. So I, I started off with fiction. I read a lot of fiction. I think uh, I read The Godfather uh, by Mm -hmm. Mario Puzo when I was in standard four. And that book I have read around 50, easy, easy 50 times. I think that book uh, changed my life. Uh, It's full of violence. It's full of drama. It's full of uh, murder, whatever you call it. Uh, But at the core of it, it also gives a message about, you know, how man is a slave to circumstances. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that book has stuck with me, like that book in a way kind of, you know, inspired me to mold my life in a certain way, where I do not just fall into circumstances and circumstances dictate Mm -hmm. my future, but I have some control over destiny. So Mm -hmm. as I progressed along, uh, I, in my 11th, 12th, and I think the first and second year of law school, uh, I kind of grew out of reading books, uh, because I like to read a lot of fiction. Uh, so, I got over that phase. I got over reading Agatha Christie in my 10th and all. So, I kind of lost, lost touch. Uh, right. I started, so when I resumed reading, uh, I started reading nonfiction fiction mode. So, mm-hmm. a couple of books. So, as of right now, how things stand. Uh, I like to read about people uh, in general. So, one book right. I really liked in particular was uh, Shoe Dog by Phil, Phil Knight, Knight, who's the uh-huh. founder of Nike. Right. So one thing which always strikes out to me when I'm reading a book uh, is, uh-huh. okay, does it feel like I'm on a journey along with this person? So that was something uh-huh. which was very, very evident in Phil Knight's book.
0: So do, you, so do you, I- you end up reading the whole book or do you like kind of quit the book in the middle, you know, like this? Mm-hmm. Isn't good, I, I never I'll not read it. it. You've never quit a book. <laughs>
1: No, if I started and okay, there are some books I'd say that, you know, who just hook you like, you know, like again, shoe dog is the biggest example. It mm-hmm. was an 800 page book and I said, I can't stop reading it to even sleep. I have to finish it. Mm-hmm. So I finished it, you know, as quickly as possible in four or five hours, whatever it took me. So there are books that, right. hook you, but there are also books which disturb you, you know, which they're tough books to read. Uh, say, for example, there's something called. The Gulag Archipelago, Mm -hmm. uh, which was written by Sholzhenitsky. Uh, The Gulag Archipelago is the author's memoir, essentially, of life Mm -hmm. under the Bolsheviks. uh, When that entire, the Stalinist regime, basically, of, you know, how USSR is supposed to be this utopia, but in reality, it is a very dark and a very disturbing place. So, when you read a book like that, uh, it just screws your mind over. Like, okay, things can be that bad for people. I mean, he, he gives one example of how the Britishers uh, promised a certain group of, you know, ethnic Russians that, okay, if you fight against the communists, we will give you your liberty, we'll allow you to settle somewhere in Europe. So, these guys fought. What happened right. was, later on, towards the end of the war, the USSR becomes an ally of UK and USA. Uh-huh. So, when the war ends, what the British do, so these guys, they come up, these ethnic uh, Russians, they come up and they say that, okay, you promised us something, uh, and now we want to, you know, because Stalin has come to power, he will kill us, definitely, because we took up arms against, you know, the forces on your instruction uh, Mm -hmm. initially, so, you know, give us some sanctuary or something. So what the British did was, uh, they said, okay, okay, we'll do that. They put them on a train and send them back to Stalin, and Stalin had that entire uh, I'd say ethnic group, basically entirety of it executed. So, you know, when you read stuff like that of how deplorable human beings can be, uh, so those things they disturb you. They, they make you, they make it a difficult read. So I kind of need to take a bit of, you know, time away from reading that. And
0: that happened to me, you know, when I was in class two or three, I, I started reading Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, not oh, a good time man. to read <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: have you heard of her, her, Nadia Murad?
0: I haven't yet, not yet.
1: So, uh, Nadia Murad uh, is an ethnic Kurdish person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, she won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2018. So, uh, okay,
0: okay, okay. That's why the name sounded familiar. Mm-hmm.
1: So, mm-hmm. Nadia Murad wrote the book called The Last Girl. And this is probably the most disturbing, it's it's the most painful book that I've ever read. And I was surprised that a book could, you know, evoke such uh, feelings, in you, that feeling of, you know, pain and despair in you. Mm -hmm. So her story is basically, she was from Kurdistan, which is a part of Iraq. And she was like a very happy-go-lucky, you know, teenage kid, you know, 19, 20 years old. And then what happens, that's when ISIS starts to show up. Mm -hmm. And all these, uh, you know, ethnic Kurdish fighters or whoever these people are, who are supposed to protect their village, in the middle of the night, they escape. And then the the ISIS forces come in, they just capture everyone, they kill. uh, So, Mm -hmm. what her literal words were, they take up a boy, Mm -hmm. and if he has hair in his armpits, they'd execute him. Because they feel that this guy is now too old enough, know, he may seek revenge or whatever. They killed everyone. Mm-hmm. And then they took the women as slaves. Like, this is real life slavery in the 21st century. Right, right, and, right. And mm-hmm. you, you, can, you can imagine how it goes from there. Like, it's a brutal regime. They're basically worse than animals or whatever. And, you know, they're indefensible women out there. And it, it's a horrifying book. Like, you know, how they're repeatedly taken and sold and raped. And oh my, it's, it's disturbing to its very core. Right. one thing she mentioned in that book was uh, when these isis forces started to invade what the people did was they thought that okay the usa will come to help us barack obama was the president back then he will come to help us so they pined on that hope and then that hope is not rewarded there's nothing... look here's the
0: thing here's the thing this, this sounds like more like political propaganda than actual hope <laughs>
1: I'll be honest. I'll be honest. It, been, look, be honest it, it have, sounds
0: like political propaganda, man.
1: It may have been to say the USA. It may have been to say, you know, the NATO or to the uh, United Nations mm-hmm. who hasn't lived their life ever out of their village, who has constantly heard that, you know, uh, this person, this random person in this random country, 10,000 miles away, that person is kind of like, you know, a savior of the world. That person puts everything in order. And that is reaffirmed through ages. And that faith is not rewarded. This is just an example of, you know, how faith was not rewarded. Uh, It was misplaced faith.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And that hurts. It it may happen in different contexts. It may happen so that, you know, a person who you closely know, who you rely upon, does not reciprocate that faith when the time comes. Mm -hmm. And that feeling also hurt. Hurts. Uh, mm-hmm. But in this particular context, keeping in mind all the horrors that she had to endure, it's tragic. That person is, she's 26, 27 years old. And, you know, on the cover of that book, uh, her picture, Nadia Amrath's picture is there. You often feel that, you know, pictures are just pictures. But when you look into that picture, you see those eyes, you think, oh my God, this person has lived a thousand years on this earth and has seen Every evil imaginable. It's that tragic a book. And what's even worse is that these things happen all the time and we don't realize it. There's, there's not enough attention to it. Or we just are very convenient in our own selves to ignore these right. things because these things are hard.
0: Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very uh, difficult to come to terms with reality. I think I have kind of hardened and become a little more insensitive than I'd like to be because I've seen these things happen secondhand. So, I mean, not not like the captivation, not terrorism. I wasn't born in Kashmir. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I have seen these things happen as in I've seen uh, evil things that most people talk about happen in real life. Uh, so I kind of, I kind of, have become insensitive to a lot of it and that so excuse me for not reacting in the more proper ways of the world but but i think yeah there are there are a lot of books that kind of evoke that kind of so when, when i think this one book that both of us have read back in school was by Booker t washington up from slavery yeah uh when yeah. i when i heard about slavery it sounded like a bad thing but not not a very bad thing you know like people were held as slaves oh okay cool but when I read Booker T. Washington's plight, it, it was it kind of put things into perspective for me. Like, okay, it was really bad. <laughs> you know how bad it was. Uh, it was kind of an epiphanous thing for me that you know even even when we say that uh, that America is a good country and these things have happened, they have they also have a history of bad things. Uh, and 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 that kind of you know for every book when I read, I think Gulliver's Travels. Uh, you might have read that book, right? Sweet. Yeah. Swift. I I, I read that book, I think, uh, last year as well, once more. And I kind of, whenever I read that book, I think how much of a genius that um, Jonathan Swift was, because it is such a beautiful political commentary without sounding like a political commentary.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's true for, you know, every form of art, like, you know, as you mentioned, Booker T. Washington. Uh So that moment of epiphany when you had that you know when you read that book that okay right. is that bad i just don't mm-hmm. realize it mm-hmm. so i had that in the visual medium uh, there's this movie called the green mile it's tom hanks uh, mm-hmm. he's the lead character in there
0: uh, right. i forgot
1: the name of the other actor who played this uh, african-american person who mm-hmm. has been uh, you know charged mm-hmm. with uh, murdering two little girls So what happened was, so he later proves it's a fantasy movie, essentially, you know, there are elements of magic in it. Uh, So what happens is, there's this moment, you know, when everything comes together and you realize, okay, this person is innocent. But because he can't prove his innocence, he is going to be executed. So -hmm. they ask him, okay, what is your last wish? And he says, I just want to watch a flicker tape. Flicker tape is essentially motion picture back then, you know, they had all these reels and all at one end of the room, the light is shining on a projector and then you watch a movie. So this guy says, I want to watch a flicker tape movie because I've never watched it. But the way in which it was delivered, the way in which that entire scene was set up after two hours of watching that movie, that to me personally put into perspective how bad you know the situation was yeah. for say people of color back at that point of time. So I think that's the power of artistic medium when yeah. you mention that, you know, Dulliver's Travel is a social commentary. Mm -hmm. I think one particular, you know, uh, uh, series right now, which I found to be the best form of political commentary and one of the deepest, is Attack on Titan. uh, To people who are unfamiliar with it, Uh, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with it, in fact. Uh, It's an anime, it's a manga series, a Japanese manga series, essentially, which was adapted into a wildly popular uh, television uh, anime Right, series. right, so right. It just computed. It, it just it just looks around. like
0: you know the the Japanese people have a lot of uh, depth to convey. Uh, somehow I find the Japanese medium. I think Japan Japan has been the pioneer for all the anime that we have watched. Be it Pokemon, we we have grown up with it, right? Shin uh, Doraemon, all those things.
1: Absolutely, and you know. It's not as if, say, these animes are the ones who are just, you know, for fun. Say, for example, Pokemon or Shin Chan, you know, they are fun things to watch. But at the same time, you look at, say, anime movies like uh, Spirited Away. Or I know my, my, my point
0: watch. being that even, even those fun movies, when you watch Pokemon for like when you grow up, you realize that they actually put in a lot of depth in the storytelling. Absolutely. And that's what, that's what I'm saying that the, the amount of depth, the amount of content that I used to watch as a kid today's kids who are watching Game of Thrones even if it looks like the most deep shit you can ever watch it, it, it's not as good as Pokemon I think I think Pokemon has the amount of storytelling, dude the legit evolution from one Pokemon to another can be mapped to the evolution of animals in our animal kingdom, it, it, it's that well done and then when you talk about it you know the um, Pikachu being, uh, there, there's a very good article which talks about Pikachu, how it's a it's a it's the subconscious of Ash. And and that kind of blew me away. It's a very, very long article. And it kind of talks about how Pikachu is the subconscious of Ash and how Ash is Ash is dreaming all these wars in his head and all those things. And it kind of puts things into perspective that the amount of open to interpretation things that the Japanese people have written and produced is, is almost commendable.
1: Absolutely. And I think one another recurring theme that you can take from the Pokemon series Mm -hmm. is that the constant changing of, you know, people Ash is with on his journey. Like the only constants in that series are Ash and Pikachu. So at the time, I think when we watched Pokemon, you know, when it was just blowing up the world uh, at that point of time, it was Brock and Misty. And, you know, they are the two companions that Ash has. And then, you know, they are replaced by other people and then other people. To a point when you realize that's another running theme that okay the people you know who are say, the closest to you mm-hmm. even they won't be constant as you enter the next phase of your life you'll get new people along with you will become equally good friends if not better or you know maybe to a lesser extent mm-hmm. so you know these recurring themes which are put forward so subtly mm-hmm. uh, which we you know don't realize uh, initially but when you just take a step back and you ruminate and you right. think, okay, you know, th- this is just more than you know something which is there with all that sci-fi thing. Yeah, so right. I think that's right. the beauty of art.
0: Yeah, I, I, have never really seen that in American or Indian films. You know, like Green Gold used to produce this thing called Chota Bheem. I think it was India's biggest <laughs> production it. ever. It was India's biggest production ever. I think. I think, uh bad movie, bad series or anime series or whatever it was. Uh, cartoon, anime, whatever you would classify it. I mean, people would crucify me if I said that I do not watch anime. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, there's that. And and then, I, I kind of I kind of had this thing where I was teaching kids uh, in primary school, so I kind of had to rewatch these things and retell them these stories in a better manner so that they could. I didn't want want kids of 2021 to go back home uh, put their bags down, take their phones and play games over there. That's what my goal with teaching primary kids was that I, I teach them that how the superheroes that they might watch on TV are the coolest people and the cool, because they go out, play, meet more people.
1: True, which is, that's of course, funny. right now, it's physically not possible. But... <laughs> not right now, but, but,
0: but when I was teaching these kids, you know, this, this was my goal uh, that I, I'll tell them that they should go out and they should play and that's what will make them better kids. And and, and I think that that's what, uh, yeah, yeah, man.
1: (laughs) Again, the bottom line for this is, you know, stepping out of that comfort zone. zone, Because you are very comfortable, of course, you know, playing with your mobile, you you don't have to talk to anyone. Yeah, comfort comfort, comes with inertia.
0: Fetch your own comfort.
1: True, absolutely. And again, I think this is something that you relate to also. Seek discomfort. Of course, yeah. Yeah, that, that's the yes
0: theory. Yes theory mantra. Sh- seek Absolutely. discomfort. Uh-huh.
1: Shout, shout out to Matt yes. at Yes Theory. Matt at <laughs> Yes Theory.
0: I, I, I kind of used to follow Yes Theory before they became a yes theater. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, even I have stopped watching, uh, following them. But then for a period of time, they were really good. Uh, the stories that they had to share, they were really good.
0: See, here's the thing. I like YouTubers right before they get famous
1: because it's more authentic yeah,
0: it's very very authentic they're putting in their best because they know they're going to blow up they're right at the very spot and then once they blow up they're like okay cool the bubble has bursted I'll go back I'll find someone else now which is what I don't want to be you know I don't want to be one of those bubbles when I'm creating content I want to be that's why I started off with bigger people and right now it's with my friends who are the biggest people you know
1: that's a very, very <laughs> nice way to put things. That's very cool of you. Mm-hmm. And that's very right of you, I'd say. I mean, of course. Uh, so you take a look at, you know, again, hearkening back to Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he interviews famous people, uh, but he also interviews some random people whom you have never heard of. He interviews and they're the most
0: interesting people. people. I, I never thought that his yes. interview with, um, anyone else was as interesting as his interview with Naval Ravikant.
1: I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that episode. Okay. Uh, or, or he, he
0: has his friend, right? The artist. I don't remember the guy's name. Italian artist who who, who comes to his podcast. Uh, he's come a lot a of, lot
1: of people, yeah. A lot of people, man. A lot of people. Joey Diaz, for example.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Eddie Bravo.
1: So people who are absolute bonkers.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: you find that, you know, a conversation with friends.
0: Anyone like, except Alex Jones with... has been a good guest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I,
1: I'd say his best guest... Uh,
0: was jordan peterson i shout that's because you're a jbp fanboy my man you got you got to listen to episode with with other i think joe rogan has never done a bad podcast uh so far before he went to spotify after he went to spotify i think yeah i stopped watching i stopped listening i stopped listening (laughs) but
1: but then uh, i'd say again
0: that you know on that jbp part
1: again uh one thing about JDP, of course, he gives solid advice, you know. He's, of course, in equal parts criticized and equal parts praised by, you know, various sections of population. Mm-hmm. But one thing, uh, uh, again, which makes me admire Jordan Peterson mm-hmm. is the fact that, okay, this is a guy uh, who was willing to risk everything, his entire professional career at the Ooh. University of Toronto, mm-hmm. his entire privacy, the fact that, you know, he's going to get hounded. He knew all these things. Without any guarantee that, you know, there are people out there who might, you know, agree with his views. There was a very high chance, you know, he could have gotten fired from his job. This guy is 55 years old. And, you know, you get fired, you won't get hired by anyone else. Right. Uh, And then, you know, at the same time, his wife is also diagnosed with cancer. And this guy is on antidepressants. So, his Mm -hmm. immune system is fucked up. So, all these things. In spite of that, he stayed true to his principles. He faced whatever you know, these interviewers or say, you know, the left-wing mm-hmm. media or the neoliberals, whatever mm-hmm. you call it, they threw at him and he mm-hmm. faced it head-on. Right. So he may have succeeded in changing people. Most mind modernist
0: neo-Nazis.
1: Got... <laughs> yeah, whatever you may label him as. But right. he got vilified a lot. But in spite mm-hmm. of that, he stuck on. So that, mm-hmm. that again, you know, that character of a person, that grit, so, right. you know, stand by your views, you know, even when half of the world says you're wrong, uh, to me, that makes him quite admirable. And of course, I agree with quite a few of his points as well. So that helps things. Uh, but yeah, these are some people I look up to.
0: I love the interview we did with Lance Armstrong, for example. I think Lance Armstrong has never really been open as, as open as he was in Joe Rogan.
1: He, I, Elon Musk, man. Yeah. No CEO would smoke up. <laughs> I mean, I,
0: I, I kind of believe that Elon Musk can do random shit now that he does random shit. But then Lance Armstrong, of course. Um, And then Randall Carlson. Um,
1: Edward Snowden.
0: Edward Snowden, of course. That was and a then, fantastic interview. Yeah, there was Tim Ferris. You heard. Yeah, I mean, everyone you can imagine who has been even... Mike Tyson was on the interview. So hey, anyone who was... Uh, yeah, if you if you want to look at that, there was, he has Dave Asprey on his. I think it was Dave Asprey on Joe Rogan, I'm not sure. That biohacker. I, I,
1: I think we have settled it quite, you know, uh, <laughs> succinctly that Joe Rogan is one of the best interviews out there. And uh, also,
0: also, I would recommend if people are listening, that one of my good friends now, Jordan Harbinger, and also a good supporter of this podcast. A very huge name, I oh, think. Can, I'll,
1: I'll definitely... Only second I'll to Joe it.
0: Rogan, but Jordan Harbinger, he did this interview with Mubiz, uh, Mujib Khan, uh, who was a Canadian terrorist uh, intel person. And then that interview was about how terrorists were trained and how that guy masqueraded as a terrorist for many years and then kind of gave intel. Uh, it's super interesting stuff, man. Like Joe Rogan won't do those interviews. That's what uh, Jordan I'll Harbinger does.
1: Spotify. <laughs> now he's on Spotify. He doesn't yeah, really right, do
0: that right, job. right. hundred million. No, also, also, <laughs> Joe Rogan won't, also, Joe Rogan won't go for the B-list um, intellectuals, and I think Jordan Harbinger has the liberty to do that. So that's why I kind of like him. He talked to art thieves, professional terrorists, all that. I kind of wanted to do an interview with an ex-terrorist on my podcast. I was advised against it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I had the interview recorded. I still have it recorded, but I kind of didn't want to publish it. Because, see, with Joe Rogan, he's a professional podcaster. With me, I make zero money from this podcast.
1: So, again, you know, these are things we do out of passion, don't we? Yeah, These yeah, are yeah. not That's why. things that we do to earn, say, a monetary benefit. And you realize at the end of the day, these are the things, you know, which gives you the maximum amount of, say, happiness or satisfaction, mm-hmm. whatever it might be for you. For someone, right. it may be, say, you know, just dancing endlessly some random tune or someone maybe may be singing. To you, it may uh-huh. be this podcast. So, yeah, just follow your heart, man. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of things. Desires. So, also,
0: also, Ashurabh, I didn't tell you that I'm writing a book.
1: <laughs> oh, which one? About, about, what is it about? It's,
0: it's called God Fucked Us All.
1: <laughs> I would have to agree with the title, man. God
0: really does <laughs> I, I, I project myself as a pessimist with the world is ending the God Fucked Us All and all those things. Basically, it's kind of a rant about how the world seems so fucked and how ideas are above people at this point. It's just a rant. It's a Again, story, but it's a rant.
1: You know, to that point, when you mentioned that, you know, ideas are above people, uh, I think uh, it's a dangerous thing. When you, that that makes you an ideologue, essentially. That because you place so much emphasis on an idea, That you ignore that the fact that yeah, that's what
0: that's what what I'm saying, right? That that that's a bad thing. That's that's my rant. Because when we say that feminism is more important than people, when we say that debating Islamophobia is more important than debating the crime that has been specifically committed, you get my point, right? Like like it's 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 almost like we have forgotten that there are actual people being. Uh, who are suffering for, for all sorts of ideas because of all sorts of ideas and we need to critically examine and objectively accept or reject ideas.
1: I think the biggest one, the biggest idea out there is religion. Whatever yeah. your religion may be. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's not, religion gives a lot of meaning to a lot of people's lives and mm-hmm. religion. But we, we always forget that religion is meant to improve the lives of humans. Religion is not meant that humans will always remain subjugated to some religious figurehead or authority who in Mm -hmm. the name of God is exercising his commandments and Mm -hmm. issuing directions. On the basis of a random call, you go out and assassinate someone or you get into wars with Uh each other. Uh So I think religion is the biggest, uh, again, hearkening back to Tolstoy, the opium of the masses
0: right so yeah, of course, of course of course. I think Tolstoy has been the best best person. I, I, a book I'd recommend over here for the readers would be uh, a brief history of Religion. Uh, it's a it's a very good book. It's I don't remember the author's name, but it's a very good book. It talks about it gives you a diploma course in all religions that exist and why they do exist and what is all the disagreement between them that is all about. While you're at it, I think I'm reading this book by Ishwaran uh, that that is called The Teaching of the Upanishads.
2: Okay. Because
0: I was kind of worried about so many people that I know passing away due to COVID. And that's why I kind of wanted to discover what the Vedas and Upanishads talk about death. And I think I found that book in that process. It's, It's a very good book which takes Nachiketa as a person. He discusses, he has a discussion with the god of death for the whole book. And it's a very philosophical dialogue, but it's a very interesting book to read. The Essence of the Upanishads by Ishwaran.
1: When you look back at, you know, uh, death, uh, a couple of things that, you know, we don't realize for number Mm -hmm. one, uh, we we always live in denial of death. Uh, We do not, again, it's a good thing because if you're constantly thinking Mm -hmm. about death all the time. I would say
0: say we we live in conscience of the death, but in, in conscious denial of it.
1: Correct. We live in essential... It's a willful ignorance of Mm -hmm. reality, essentially. Right. So, we tend to never discuss about death. At least in our society, we tend to keep it at a distance. Uh, But then when you look at uh, the Mexican culture, where Mm -hmm. they essentially have a celebration for death, which is, you know, now Hollywood has popularized it as, you know, Day of the Dead in all these movies and all. Uh, But -hmm. when you look back at their entire culture of, say, Mm -hmm. even the Aztecs from whom the Mexicans are descended and all, death uh, is considered, death is not ignored per se, That is mm-hmm. not something you know which they shy away from they uh, bring it so much into their culture
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, that it they worship, you know you must have seen these dolls and all you know which has got skulls and all painted on it you know mm-hmm. they have these shamans or people you know they have festivals dedicated to it. Right. So I think that is a completely contrasting but an equally interesting way of you know thinking about
0: that right 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 i think hollywood puts everything on a position of uh, uh affectedly grand and self important pedestal if i should say it that True. way <laughs> like True, like uh, like some some random festival in some random community becomes a huge 500 million dollar movie <laughs> rich Asians I, become comedy uh, yeah <laughs>
1: I think the best one I heard was uh, when this was released, uh, that movie by Bradley Cooper, American Sniper. I think okay. the best review or something I or a comment or whatever it was, uh, was that Americans, sorry, Hollywood, uh, Hollywood and Americans would invade your country, kill your people, and then make movies about how it made them sad. Wow. So. I think that, that that is quite accurate. Uh, I I kind of
0: I kind of I kind of see when events happen. Then there are two people who run to take licenses. One is the Z News reporters who go and run to ask <laughs> okay. the dead how they feel about death, and,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and the other being
0: and the other being movie producers who who you know register a film as Confessions of a Corpse. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: true. True, man,
0: true. <laughs> I would actually watch a film called Confessions of a Cops if it actually exists. <laughs> that, that,
1: that's a good name. Maybe that should be your second book. I yeah, Confessions of a Cops. God
0: fucked us all, Confessions of a Cops. I'll, I I kind of got inspired <laughs> for this book by this character in a TV series called Californication, which is about an, a man who's an embodiment of Bukowski's life. Oh, Charles Bukowski. Yeah. That guy. Yeah. So there's this man called Hank Moody who is Bukowski, but he's an author and he drinks a lot and he's a womanizer. I don't relate to him in all of those things, but I relate to him in the fact that he's super laid back and he's kind of uh, distressed but doesn't act upon it. You know, he's always in a constant dilemma about yeah is he in love or is he not you know th- those kind of things it's a very very and
1: in some ways uh, sorry to interrupt but i yeah, think yeah, sure. in some ways i just add that even hemingway was kind of like that when you look right at yeah Henry, he was
0: he was, like... he was he was he was you have to be a particular type of mad to be an author <laughs> hemingway used to drink a lot if i remember uh it yeah, said yeah. in popular culture Hem- hemingway was a drunkard and most authors we they think that they've constantly spent their life writing books right now I think there's no modern author who's as good as any other any of those people who have lived before them but when 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 we talk about old. I, uh-huh
1: I, I I agree because again so one thing I often go back to is mm-hmm. okay so let's just take English okay mm-hmm. uh, it's the world's most uh, fluently speaking a spoken language so not fluently most commonly spoken language right a lot of people speak english mm-hmm. so when you look at say the classics or not not even the classics say you know uh modern classics say you know look at say uh lord of the rings or say their entire agatha christie series or say you know the lion the prince the lion the witch and the wardrobe seriously always the chronicles right. of nanya series and all which are all of them are, you know, 80, 90, uh, 100 years old, uh, if not more. But even today, you know, they retain their popularity. And, you know, even though we have a better crop of humankind, you know, we have smarter people, uh, we have better people. But none of us, you know, can tell a story in that way. I think the one person who comes close to that right now would be J.K. Rowling with the Mm -hmm. Harry Potter series, Mm -hmm. which is absolutely enchanting. Uh, but apart from her, or say, you know, maybe uh, Dan Brown, which is, you know, that entire Robert Langdon series, mm-hmm. uh, no one can hold your attention in a manner or hook you, you know, in a manner in which those authors are it.
0: The most popular I mean, books that I read right now are either intended to become movies because, you know, people write, people want a foot in the door.
1: Correct. People
0: want attention. So it's mostly done that way. So whenever I, I mean, Harry Potter is good, but Harry Potter was back in the day. Good. Harry Potter right now. when I I listen to JK Rowling, Harry Potter becomes less and less attractive. It's like this mad woman wrote this book. Cool. (laughs) I
1: I tend to dissociate, you know, authors from their views and what they've written, uh, say, fictionally or in that mm -hmm. context. Because when you club them together, they might not be, you know, the nicest fit, because you may not be able to reconcile that, okay, this person did this, or, you know, so, see, you, but, you but, but that's, right?
0: but, but see, as a nonfiction reader, you have to do that, right? You can't read, when you read Silverman's or David Buss's books on evolutionary psychology and biology, you have to kind of believe what he writes. But if, if, if a random guy called Mahesh Kumar from Jharkhand writes the same <laughs> book, and even yeah. if it is much yeah. better than that, you have to kind of, I, I, I kind of look for substance, you know, that, that's the thing. So when I, when I look at Silverman, I don't see that he has been cancelled 15 times by Twitter. I look at the fact that how he represents himself on social media in general. So that's very much like when I listen to a singer's song, I'm kind of curious how this guy sounds without production. And then I listen to his sound and I'm like, ah, okay, cool. Now this guy sounds as good as he sounds in his, the song. So I can kind of trust his sound when I'm listening to it. I don't know if many people do that, but I kind of do that. So, which is why when I, I look up the authors that I read and I see their Twitters and Facebooks, because everyone has to be active there. Otherwise you can't sell copies. Uh, and, I, and I look at it and I'm i am like, ah, okay, cool. She or he talks about the same things that they talk about in the book. And I kind of agree to that. But when I go there and it's a sales funnel buy my $5 course on how to become a millionaire because I wrote this book and became a millionaire. I think that I'm probably reading a sales pitch more than a book. You know, True,
1: I, I completely agree. And I just give like, you know, a rider that, you know, when I was mentioning the dissociation, I meant strictly to, non-fiction,
0: sorry, fiction books. Not yeah, maybe, maybe, books. maybe. I, I I, think I think you're right over there. But, but then again, bro, like, look at Chetan Bhagat. I, I like the guy in general. I don't like his books in general. I mean, I like the guy in general as in he expresses what he feels like, right? I mean, even if he's always wrong, but he's, he says what he speaks, right? But his books, his mind essentially. yeah, but his books are not that way.
1: <laughs> I have read only a couple of his books. I think I read five point someone. I never had the privilege really? to read
0: Chetan Bhagat. I, I could never complete any of his books. See, well, first thing, I find fiction boring. Um, okay. The second okay. thing that I, 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 yeah, which is why I don't watch movies. I don't watch anime. I don't read books or fiction. But then uh, I kind of like Chetan Bhagat. I wanted to like that guy, yeah. you know. I, I saw him on stage. He was speaking. He speaks whatever the fuck he feels like. Very much like a lot of people that I like. Uh, but then I read his books and they feel like Bollywood movies and
1: Thrill, masala movie. it's
0: not what yeah. he wants to write right and if that's what he wants to write and he's kind of he's faking either of those personalities personalities you know
1: see that is what people recognize pretty like you know it, maybe it's like an inherent antenna that we have
2: mm-hmm. we
1: recognize you know when someone is bullshitting us we recognize right. when someone is not being authentic you just get a drift
0: Quick plug over here. Quick plug over here. There's this book called Gavin Becker's The Gift of Fear, I think, which talks about this phenomena, about our antennas and how we recognize people. <laughs> I'll
1: yeah. definitely check it out then. Sounds interesting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, so we are drawn so much. So, again, you know, I'm not sure if you watch sports or not. Uh, I, do, okay. I do, I
0: do, I do, I mm-hmm.
1: do. So a very cop- so again, you know, I read this article, or you know, I watched this interview or something where someone says that okay. When, say, a particular team, you know, wins or loses, uh, you have nothing attached to that team. You're not, unless you have, say, bet money on it, Mm -hmm. which is a recent phenomenon, Mm -hmm. you're not losing anything. But even in spite of that, why are our emotions so involved in this particular, you know, span of, say, 90 minutes, if it's a football match or, say, a one-day match or cricket or whatever it may be, whatever sport you may watch. Mm -hmm. Why do we feel like, you know, we have won or we have lost based on the performance of those 5 to 10 players, or say, you know, that one Roger Federer playing that Grand Slam final, why do we feel that, you know, we have a personal connection with them? And I thought about it quite a bit. And of course, you know, I read up on it. I watched as much as I could. Mm -hmm. And the answer that I personally feel is twofold. Number one, we feel that, you know, they are being authentic. We feel that, you know, that's because in sports, you can't pretend you're either good enough or you're not. If you're in a yeah, Grand Slam... Party, 100% a sport are,
0: sporting event is an event of uh, mutual passion. It sounds you're rather sexual, but...
1: Uh. <laughs> no, correct. I, I agree with it. Even though uh, it may not seem that way on the you know surface level, it is. It's mm-hmm. two people or two teams or two entities putting it all together. And mm-hmm. one thing, one thing that always, you know, garners the attention and respect of people. And this is something I think uh, Angela Duckworth, uh, she was she had this very famous TED talk where she mentions the one thing that, you know, always brings together is grit. And that is one quality, you know, people always want to imbue in themselves. So when you see, you know, these two teams fighting together, when you see that football match, you know, when no one is seeding an inch, you feel that you're personally a part of it because that is how our emotions are designed to be we mm-hmm. vest, we have that luxury unlike say you know uh, certain unlike most animals to invest our emotions in things that we choose to it's our emotions are not right. just say limited to uh, our families or friends our emotions mm-hmm. can also include material things you may be very emotionally attached to say your old phone or your old notebook or whatever it may be mm-hmm. So when you see someone playing with that much passion, with that much pressure on his or her shoulder, mm-hmm. and facing a challenge and overcoming them, that story of you know again overcoming adversity, that just hooks oh, you in.
0: Right, 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 right. Yeah, hundred percent, man. A game is always a story. I think I think if the fans are not passionate enough, the game is never passionate enough. I see that as a reason and a, as a reason why the Indian football team is not as good because they don't have a fan base as good and they won't have it's a chicken egg problem but then it is a problem indeed that people who don't have fans don't play good Uh, if you think about it
1: I think it's it's mutual passion but I think you have to so again you know uh, I'll just give an example of this guy Conor McGregor I'm sure you must have heard of him uh, pretty famous guy. So martial arts was well known, but it was never a worldwide sport. Like when you talk about physical combat sport, uh, boxing was always the king, like boxing at the highest number. Like, you know, you look back at history, you remember like every random person on earth in any corner has most certainly heard of people like Muhammad Ali, mm-hmm. or, you know, Mike Tyson. These are names you're familiar with and you associate them with boxing. So, right. all, most sports are essentially star-driven. You need a vehicle to, you know, create that base. So, martial arts never had a star, you know, someone who people could get attracted to. And mm-hmm. then Conor McGregor comes by, who's from Ireland, a very, very small country, 9 million people, right. uh, not even that, you know, financially mm-hmm. wealthy as the other European countries. Mm-hmm. And this guy, and there's this it factor about this guy. Mm-hmm. And this guy comes in and when he comes in, you... So, he has these quotes, you know, which are incredible. He says that, you know, if one of us go to war, all of us go to war. Just with that one sentence, people in that arena went nuts. That right. ability to, you know, hook people in. He is the one, you know, who kicked down the door and made martial arts a worldwide sport. To the extent mm-hmm. that, you know, he is now Ford's richest athlete.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: people around the world, they are associating Conor McGregor's name on the same level as, you know, uh, not same, but a close enough level to say as Mike Tyson or say, you know, even Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. So in sport, it's always that athlete who comes in first, who, mm-hmm. you know, creates that. Mm-hmm. In India, you, you may look at, say, badminton, you mm-hmm. know, before Saina Neval, before PV Sindhu. No one cared that much about badminton. But all of a sudden, you have this person, you know, who's doing these incredible things on the international stage. Right. And that gives permission to a lot of young people out there that, okay, we can follow our passion in this particular sport or in this particular field. I think that's the beauty of sport. Uh, any sport. A
0: hundred percent, man. hundred percent. There are so many people who are. Yeah, That, that that's all true. That's all true. Mm. Damn. Something else that you have been very involved in and let's let's keep it very brief. Um, that is art. I think you draw a lot of art. Um, which is something that I can't do even if I want to. But uh, the last question, you know, how would you define how you understand art or man, you draw it? Man, that's
1: a, that's a wonderful question. I, I never have asked myself that question. Uh, okay, so uh, let's let's I, make I, it a little I'm easier
0: fun. for you. Let's make it a little easier for you. Right. What, what for you is your art and, and yeah, what for you is your art?
1: I think this is a more difficult one <laughs> because zero, it, it, it just circles back to, I have not of me not having understood myself fully. So then I'll, I then I'll
0: again so ask you that. Why, why don't you, uh, uh, why is art? Why doesn't art come with questions for you? Why do you Why do you not have to ask yourself questions that you know? Why I want to represent this particular thing through art and this particular thing through writing.
1: Hmm. Okay. This I think this uh, I can I can attempt to answer. Uh, so uh, So I I'll, I'll tell you how I started off with art and painting. Over. So again I I start I am essentially someone who's more comfortable with pencils and black and white Mm -hmm. and charcoal Mm -hmm. than with say color Uh, so I started off by just scribbling random Mm -hmm. things on you know pieces of paper so much so that my dad would often tell me that uh, like when I was younger like he'd say that I, I completed my graduation by using less paper than you have you know scribbled at in the span of one year. So it started off with that. I would draw random shit. I'd draw cartoons or whatever. I could. It could be scribbles. It would not have any meaning whatsoever. Uh, So I I never took any formal training for art. Uh, Like I have have like whatever. And I have not even, you know, watched videos on how to learn it. I do watch them now. uh, But I'm essentially self-taught. So, you know, a lot of people say, this is how the light should fall. This is how shading is done or whatever. When you look at professional artists, so I don't draw like that. I don't think like that. Mm-hmm. I, if, if I see something, I feel like, okay, I want to draw it. So I will draw it. Uh, I do absolutely agree that uh, this is, again, this is God's gift. Like, you know, art I've never had to uh, work hard towards. I always enjoy painting, but I always enjoy sketching. So to me, art is an escape. And I think it is true for a lot of these artists you know whatever they may be uh, it is an escape from whatever else is going on because when i have that piece of paper out in front of me and i'm sketching and uh, and i'm scribbling on it i'm drawing these lines and all uh, it just takes me to a different place i forget about the world uh, that is the point of time when i have the maximum concentration mm-hmm. and i always sketch when i have music playing on alongside me. like i'll switch on like Savan or whatever app there is, and mm-hmm. you know some tune uh, would be played, and I'd be sketching. That it's an experience I think a lot of people get when they are on hallucinogenics. When you know you are in a flow. St- yes, if you are in a flow state. Yes, I think ah, that the,
0: the flow state. Appropriate right, word. right, right. You are in right. a
1: flow state. Things are flowing. You are working, but you are not feeling that you are working. Time has passed on. And you feel very, very happy and relaxed. So that is how I went into sketching. Uh, I had to leave sketching for like four or five years. Uh, Like after my ninth or tenth, I did not draw or whatever. Uh, And I always wanted to get to know how to paint. (laughs) I unfortunately never knew how to paint. Uh, So what happened, this is something I realized later on. What I used to do was that I would try to paint On normal paper and it was only last year when lockdown happened that i realized that okay you need different paper you need watercolor paper to paint upon and i could not paint properly it wasn't because of any fault of my own but because you know the material itself was wrong so Ah, that is how my journey of art has progressed Mm
2: -hmm.
1: it is just making one mistake after another, mm-hmm. some of some paintings don't turn out to be really well. That if you
0: didn't realize active. was very much like the journey of your life you just narrated, I think, 30-40 minutes ago.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Art is lifetime. And mm-hmm. I, I think I can give a very uh, succinct definition of art. I don't know who gave it. Uh, but it goes as such, art should disturb, be comforted and comfort the
2: disturbed.
1: Mm. And that's Beautiful. true. Art is something which people can appreciate, man. People, again, it's something which is authentic, right? People right. can see if it is good art or not. So there's no bullshitting in art.
0: Mm. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's, that's very true. <laughs> Damn, man. Uh, we had a very, very interesting conversation. I think we're recording this for the second time for the people who are listening so far. Uh, and
1: this is, I think, if I may just say, this is incredibly <laughs> levels above the one that we had the first time. I'm like, I personally. Yeah,
0: it was very imbecile the very first time because I wanted to keep it a little <laughs> informal and, you know, less. Uh, so my bad with that one. But then this one has been. LHC- no, no, no,
1: no, man. It's on, it, it was on both of us, man. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I was half of that conversation. Right?
2: So <laughs> but yeah, is, but. but- is it- <laughs> if
1: i if i may say i think before we agreed to have this podcast recorded i think i mentioned that you know we're going to have an epic one so i think this second podcast is everything that i imagine in my head our podcast would be and if not better so i think yeah i think this is a very special one we should have a third one
0: again (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah sure man sure man whenever
0: you feel like uh, yeah man but thank you so much for coming over to the world is ending podcast on a busy Sunday for you Um. But, yeah man any any final words that you would like to end with
1: uh,
0: life I, lessons are things you stole from a book you just read uh,
1: I think I can never steal or borrow enough from a book uh, but one thing you do know about me is that I love A lot of quotes. Yeah. So maybe I'll just leave everyone who's listening uh, with a quote. Uh, This is again to you know encourage people to go on with their lives. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is something I heard somewhere, and this is something I feel my life uh, represents, or I have tried to emulate in my life. So I leave Mm -hmm. it for others, and take it as you may. When the undesirable. And of course, I modified this quote a little bit on my own. So, hey, credits partially to me too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, sorry, to myself too. Uh, so the quote, it, it goes as such. When the undesirable becomes the undeniable, mm-hmm. then the impossible becomes the inevitable.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. It took me a half a second to process that one. Good stuff, man. But yeah, damn, that's a good note to end on. Yeah. Thank you so much, Asherbad, for uh, being on the show. I think this has been incredible. Um, it's an incredible start to the podcast. I'm not editing any part of this interview whatsoever.
1: This is fantastic, man. I think it's one of the best conversations I've ever had.
0: Oh. I hope, and I hope keep- <laughs> that's and you have uh- and you have records to keep for I...
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and I hope that you know people who do listen to it take whatever they may out of it, you know, whatever part they feel is useful, of course. Yeah, I hope it helps them. That's yeah.
0: all. So, guys listening on Spotify, go follow our podcast. Uh, if you're listening on Apple iTunes, go push some ratings. I don't know, one star, five star, whatever works for you. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening. I usually don't appeal for these votes and followers and all that, but. It kind of helps me with the views since the podcast is pretty much dead right now. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for uh, listening to The World is Ending Podcast. Thanks to Ashurabh. Have a good day, you guys.